Welcome to the Digital Thoughts Podcast. My name is Zan Sayed, and I am a pharmacist turned product manager. I have almost 10 years of clinical experience in oncology, ranging from inpatient all the way to outpatient. My goal with this podcast is to bring people from all sides of the conversation together so that we can learn from each other and build a better healthcare system. In this podcast, we discuss everything digital health from the people to the products. If you do enjoy what you listen to, please consider giving this podcast a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It really does help a lot. Thank you very much, and let's get into the episode. Today, we have an amazing guest. His name is Rashad Usmani. He is an artist, entrepreneur, investor, and also a physician. In this episode, we touch on what is the difference between a VC and an angel investor, and when do you approach one or the other? What he looks for in founders when he's investing? Can AI replace clinicians, and should they? And what he learned while creating his own health tech startup. I hope you guys enjoy this episode as much as I did. All right, guys, I have an awesome guest here today. His name is Rashad Usmani. Uh, hey, Rashad, how are you doing? Good, Zen. It's great to be here. Yeah, thanks for uh, your time. I really appreciate it. Uh, Rashad, for those who don't uh, know you, would you mind giving us a little background about yourself? Yeah, for sure. So I'm a practicing physician. I work in urgent care. I started my startup three years ago. It was called Clinic Up. It was in the telemedicine space. It grew to serve about 1,100 patients. We had about a $6 million acquisition offer. We got sued and then we lost it all. And after that, I started angel investing, and I've been angel investing for the past one year. And I recently launched an angel syndicate called Health Tech Investors. Oh, very awesome. And maybe if you're, maybe we can get into kind of your startup a little bit and what you learned from it. But um, I'd like to touch on the investing side quite a bit because I think that's such a foreign world to a lot of people. Uh, me included. I, I mean, I, I've learned so much just from reading posts from you and just talking to you over the last um, year or so. And uh, I'd love to kind of share that with my audience. So what are the biggest things that you learned from the investing side that you didn't really know or was kind of a surprise to you in the, when you first started? You know, the more I learn about investing, the more convinced I am we don't know what we're doing <laughs> when it comes to investing. The biggest learning early on was if you talk to a lot of people, they put a lot of weight in the idea and not enough weight on execution. If you build it, they will not come. The idea is a very small part of what makes a successful startup. Bill Gross did a study on this and they looked at hundreds and thousands of startups and what they found the the biggest predictor of success is market timing, which is very different from the public stock market. So I, the other mistake I would say, I would not equate anything you know from real estate or the public markets and apply it to the startup world. I would look at it as a completely different field. Um, I would equate it to, you know, you're applying, I don't know, um, scuba diving principles to treating patients. Like I would look at them as like something, two completely different worlds. And the reason I say that is market timing is known to be a path to failure in the public markets. And Warren Buffett talks about this time in the market beats timing the market. In the startup world, it's the complete opposite. <laughs> when you launch, is the market ready? Are people ready for this? Is there enough of an infrastructure for this? And I'll give a couple of examples where there was a, a company, and I'm blanking on the name, that invented the iPhone in the 1980s. But the market wasn't ready. We didn't have fast enough internet and we didn't have the hardware needed to make it a smooth user experience. Um, Ask Jeeves was Google before Google. Google was the 18th search engine. So why, when you launch, is critical. And a lot of research needs to be done as an investor is, is now the time for this. So... That is the that is the one biggest lesson I would take away. If you want to maximize your investments, a couple things have shown to prove to provide better returns, six um, x better returns if I want to be accurate, and that is spending at least twenty hours in the diligence space. A lot of people invest on hype, and they invest because others are investing in something, and I, I don't follow that. Um, because it, there's no learnings from that when you look back and invest in hype, uh, I feel. So I've spent at least 20 hours, and then B is um, 
be an industry expert in what you're investing. So as physicians, I stick to healthcare. If I'm moving to different verticals, I need to do quite a bit of learning and teaching myself about that industry before I will invest in something outside of the health tech space. That's very interesting. And I think also kind of, it kind of shows the randomness of success sometimes, right? The timing of the market. Honestly, you really can't time the market. But if we, let's just, you know, maybe move out of the real world. Like, How would you as an investor look at, is this the right time for this? Like, what are, what, are, what are the key principles that you're looking for when you're looking at that perspective? So you're looking at a new market that's growing. Now, looking back, it's a lot easier to talk about this <laughs> retrospectively. But COVID is a great example. I think most people could have foreseen to an extent that anything virtual or online would grow. So companies like Zoom or telemedicine company, Romans for Hims, who have been great successes from an investing standpoint, those are the markets I would have looked at. Now, when COVID started, I was busy with my startup. I wasn't investing back then. But I would look for the future to see which new markets you foresee growing. So a good one right now is work from home. Is that a market that will get bigger or smaller? And that's a bet you have to make. Another one would be remote patient monitoring, home care for hospital and home care. Those are markets I'm banking on, AI to replace clinical workflows and even prescribed medication. You want to predict tailwinds in the future we think of most of our successes as internal and most of our failures as external when it's usually the opposite. It's usually internal forces uh, that drive our failures and external forces that drive our success. And investing is the same. So market tailwinds have, you know, there's there's a few books. Malcolm Gladwell talks about this in his book, um, Outliers, I believe. And then Adam Grant talks about it in his book, Originals. Both books I would recommend to anyone who wants to get into investing or just in general. Um, Yeah, so once you identify the market, then it comes down to things you look for in the product. Uh, Is it actually solving a problem? If so, in clinical medicine, does it have a clear clinical ROI and a clear financial ROI? You look at the team. And again, Originals from Adam Grant is great for this. Uh, Early on, a startup should hire for commitment. So you don't want the rock star who's not committed. You want someone who ideally doesn't know they will be a future rock star and they're committed to you and the mission of the startup. As your startup grows and once you enter more the growth stage, not finding the product market fit stage, you hire talent and experts. Yeah, and that's something that I think a lot of startups struggle with and I honestly struggled with, not struggled with, but like I didn't even think about this because I was talking to somebody who is, who's been in the startup world as well and he said that if you hire, let's say, you know, a seat, like a chief marketing officer from like a big company to your startup, they're going to bring the principles of that big company into your small startup. And the small startup is not built like that, right? The small startup has to pivot quickly and has to do all these things really quickly. Like something you might be working on for months is now nothing because you have to, you know, market has changed. And like those bigger companies don't have that problem, right? They're slow moving. They've already established themselves. And so like you, to your point, if you bring a rock star in, it's not going to help you in the in the growth phase. I mean, in the initial phase of finding that product yeah. market fit and getting to that point. Uh, and that's really fascinating. It, it's like so counterintuitive in your brain. Like you think that, no, we have to hire the best people for the job. But like, yeah. and you know, what you mentioned is commitment, right? You want people that are so committed to your to your vision that they're willing to just do anything and everything for it. Because that's what you need in a startup is you need everyone pulling at the same end and with almost you need to almost forget about reality right you know you have to almost see like you can't think of like hey this is going to fail right because yeah. then you're going to fail you have to be like we're going to succeed and we're going to do this this and this like you need people like that on your team that are delusional in a good way yeah yeah i think there's a balance between humility and confidence mm-hmm. so you need to have confidence in the problem you're trying to solve that it's a big enough problem but you need to have the humility to recognize when what you're doing is not working. Yeah. So speed of execution and the quantity of ideas and plans is more important than their quality. And the reason is because you don't know what's a quality idea. 
and to have the hubris, and this is where a lot of founders have the hubris say, this is the solution that will work. And I say, no, you don't know that. Unless you're Steve Jobs, and you're not Steve Jobs. I'll just be frank there. You're not Elon Musk, you're not Steve Jobs, and neither am I. So, for 99.99% of the people, you just have to try different things and see what works. Yeah, I think there's a book called Lean Startup. I forgot the author of it, and that was one of his biggest things. He's like, the thing that we found that we were the most successful, when we were the most successful, was not necessarily creating a polished product, but creating a product, just creating a product and getting user feedback and iterating quickly and fast. Uh, what do you think about that kind of mindset in the healthcare world? Because there are some people that will push back and be like, you can't really have an unfinished product in healthcare. So like, what are your, how would you bring that mindset into like health tech startups? Yeah, I think uh, there are a few parallels that don't work in healthcare, and this is one of them. And part of it is just regulations and what's on the line about patient health and safety. But you can iterate on workflows that don't directly correlate to clinical outcomes. You can, you can, the iteration is not just about the, the product. The core problem, you know, it's about things like what your website looks like, what colors you are choosing, um, A-B testing, different um, copywriting material. And when you're going to sell to different health systems, trying different things and seeing what sticks the most. It's not just about one thing you're solving. It's about the whole startup and everything that goes along with it. Um, I think it's a general theory that works well. Because the other option is you don't change <laughs> and you keep doing the same thing, which, you know, famously Einstein said that's the definition of insanity. You have to be a little bit insane <laughs> to be a founder and start a company. But I think humility goes a long way in iteration and, and pivoting when needed. Yeah, and I think that's why it's really important to have people, especially in the beginning, that are not just yes men, yes women, um, and they're willing to you know, you're doing a collaborative effort. I mean, eventually you need somebody to be the authority figure and be like, no, this is what we need to do. But having people like question you, and if you can't answer their question, then, you know, to your point, you have to be humble enough to be like, am I going down the right path, right? So uh, you kind of touched on this a little bit, uh, but as an investor, so you're an angel investor. Uh, can you explain what an angel investor is compared to like what a VC is? And then uh, what are specific traits that you look for in a startup that you want to invest in or you know, that makes it investable for you? Yeah, in short, um, angel investors are what people would call high net worth individuals who are taking bets on founders very early on at the idea stage, what we would call the pre-seed stage, which is one of the first stages of fundraising. VCs come later along, so venture capitalists, they, it's a full-time job, you know, that's, that's what you do for work, and usually they'll come once the idea is there, there is a product and market to an extent. There are some exceptions with biotech, but for the most part, you need to have a product and some traction. They're investing larger tech sizes, so angels would invest usually ten to 25000 VCs will usually come in minimum hundred k, usually two fifty to 500 k. So you're further along and you have a little bit more um, traction when VCs come along. In terms of returns, VCs bring on better returns usually. The average return for both is around 20% per year compared to the stock market, which is 8%. But I will say that it's skewed to the successful angels and VCs. If you're not successful as an angel, you just stop investing because you don't see the point of it. <laughs> and then as a VC... You raise funds, so generally you'll raise your first fund, which is be generally five to ten million. And once you start making money on that and giving that back to your investors, you'll raise your second fund, which will be say twenty to fifty million. If you're not successful, you won't be able to raise your second fund. <laughs> so the people who are successful last longer and they skew the numbers a little bit, but historically it's about a twenty percent annual return. Um, I don't know if that answers everything you asked, Zane. Yeah, no, that definitely answers the question. I think that, um, it, I mean, I think it's important to note that you don't go to a VC in a pre-seed setting, right? <laughs> like, you're, you, that's when you don't want to approach. I think it's also important, you know, it's important to know, like, what kind of investor should you approach at certain times. Um, and, you know, maybe I can, we can go into 
when should a startup approach approach investors at what stage so angels you can invest early on but if you're a first-time founder you're going to have a very hard time raising without traction and by traction i mean you have a product that's being sold or you have some letters of interest from whoever you're going to sell your product to if you're a second third time founder and you've had an exit already then you know you already have the relationships you know what to do so i think this question is more focused on first time founders okay you need a you need a clear path to execution and we understand that path might waver but when we say you should iterate at speed of execution you need to have full confidence in what you're doing until it doesn't meet whatever metrics you've decided for your success and then you need to pivot and then you need to have to have full confidence again in a completely different <laughs> idea which is why it's so difficult because yeah. people want to stick to one thing um but as investors we know how hard a startup is so you can in- approach investors with just a plan but i i don't think you will be successful without some traction and some sort of mvp or minimal viable product in the market okay yeah no that makes complete sense and then what so if a, when a when a startup comes up to you what are you looking for in that startup to be like okay this is an investable startup for me yeah so like first thing as a founder full time or are they going to be full time in the next 36 months how committed is this founder to the problem they're trying to solve there's a new ish term uh, founder problem fit is this problem close to themselves or someone they know how has this problem affected them and then i move on to the product is this the right solution for the problem they're trying to solve and if it isn't will they pivot to something that is the right solution I I go deep into the product cuz there are some founders who are not who are in it just for the money and I think this falls apart fairly quickly when you start getting deeper into what their product is and the problem they're trying to solve. I ask for a clear clinical and financial benefit to whoever they're selling to. And then we go deeper in the due diligence phase, we look at the legals, we look at who else is involved, we look at the cap table which is a breakdown of who has how much equity in the startup and one thing i'm lately seeing with the rise of university accelerators is the university will take quite a bit of equity i don't invest in those founders and the reason is the startup is still very early it's still going to be a very painful path and without enough equity the worry is the founder is not committed enough to continue in the startup the founder at when they approach me like ideally they have 100% um equity but at least i would say 60% equity in their startup yeah that's and when i see a founder have 5% i'm you know in the words of shark tank about <laughs> yeah that's that's interesting and um yeah and that's something i you know i wouldn't even have thought about at all actually i mean it makes complete sense right if they don't have a stake they don't have skin in the game then they're going to be like all right whatever um So full-time versus part-time. So how big of a deal is that for you? Like, you know, obviously there's sometimes people can't leave their full-time job. So is it I mean, you mentioned that in the next 6 to I think you said 3 to 6 months. Yeah. Um if do you like do you ask them for a plan or are you kind of taking it at face value like okay, yeah. And then also why don't you want to invest in something that's part-time? Just because I think it's so difficult mm-hmm. to grow a startup and like having done it myself and I did it part-time. and i think a big reason it wasn't successful is because i was part time i i just haven't seen it work and historically it usually doesn't work there's a great company here in canada whose founder is part time and i've talked to him a few times and i'm like i will invest if you go full time <laughs> but he he doesn't want to it just uh, the incentives aren't aligned and it's a sign that the founder is not committed enough to the problem from an investor perspective So I have never invested in a part-time founder and I don't think I ever will. Now being said, you know, if, if Elon Musk said came to me and said I'm starting this, yeah, I'll invest. But that's I think we hang on to these classical cases like the founders of Google or students when they started and they were still working. But what about the other 18 search engines? Yeah. <laughs> you know, that's 118. So if you're if you're going for Google, then invest in all search engines. and you have to invest in 18 of them to get that successful 
part-time founder and say you stop at the 17th one, you've made $0 and you've lost it all. Yeah, no, And I think that also goes back to your point is you need to have really good industry knowledge of the area you're investing in. Like you can't just invest in every single industry. Like if you know the industry really, really well, maybe you will come across that Google because you've seen enough or invested enough people to where one of them kind of yeah. breaks open. And that kind of leads me to the next point because investing is, from what I'm learning, is a number, numbers game, right? Um, yeah. Can you kind of go into the numbers game? Like how, how many hits do you guys, how many hits are you trying to go after? Because it's not 100%, right? You're not hitting on 100%. No. The numbers are much lower, but if you hit on one, it's kind of making up for everything that you've lost on. Yeah, so there's there's two schools of thought here. One is you invest in hundreds of startups, and I mean literally hundreds, and you're hoping that 10%, 10 to 20% are successful, but success is defined as 100 extra turns. If you think about it, if 20% are successful, you know, you're getting 2,000, you're getting a 20 extra turn on your 100 startups. If the other school of thought is you do a deep due diligence and invest in fewer, and that's more what I fall into. And by fewer, I still mean like 10 a year, five to 10 years to invest in at least 20 startups over the course of your investing. And you're still banking on about a 10 to 20% success rate. The best venture capitalists have a 50% success rate where success is defined by returning any money on their uh-huh. startup. So I would say like 20% go to zero, 60 to 70% will kind of bring you 1x, 1.5x returns. And then the remaining 10 to 20% will bring you all your returns. So it's really identifying those and then focusing on the on those 10 to 20%. What some investors get caught into, I feel, and again, I'm very new in the investing world, so I'm by no means an expert. I want to make that clear. Is they ride along startups who are just kind of doing okay, but not really growing. You know, they're, they're probably a great business, but they're not on a hockey stick growth trajectory, which is what you need as an investor. And they put all their energy in these companies because they like the founders, they like the problem. But at some point you need to say, okay, like this is a good business for you. Um, you know, this will probably bring you enough money to sustain your lifestyle. And it's great for the founders, but from the investor perspective, you need to say okay, either, I'm just, I'm not going to devote any more time or energy in this, or I, I want an exit. I want to use, sell my my equity on a secondary market or I want to get out of this startup. I think it's important to recognize when to get out of a startup as well. It's hard to do so because you can't just sell stocks like the public market. And you will lose out on some deals. Um, I forget. I think it was Basecamp. There's uh, there's a few companies who do nothing for like nine years and then have the August <laughs> growth. So it's, it, it's a difficult to... To know, and, and a lot of that is the market timing. The market finally caught up and said, we're ready. Like Metaverse is a great example of this. I don't think the market is ready for Metaverse. I don't think the hardware is there to have the user experience that needs to be provided for people to use the Metaverse. But if a company is working on a Metaverse right now and the hardware catches up in 10 years, and they already have some customer base, they know everything about the metaverse, they're well suited to cap to capitulate on that market readiness. So that's kind of one exception, but again, investing is a game of minimizing your downside, maximizing your upside, and not playing to exceptions. Yeah. No, and it's it's crazy when you say that hundreds of investments and only ten to twenty percent make it, but that's insane. So, and the other myth that, you know, actually, you actually dispelled for me, because I asked you one time, investing isn't passive, passive income. Like, you know, a lot of people say, oh, you're angel investing or VCs, like, it's just like kind of a passive income. Like, could you kind of go into that? And how much do you get involved with the companies you invest in? So I'll say one thing to start, VC is more than a full-time job. That's mm-hmm. 80 hours a week, usually. And, you know, the, the, some VCs, they're more passive but to maximize your chances of success you have to help your founders i am not super involved like i'll meet with my founders once every other month or so 
Um, and I'll help out with my newsletter, with my social media, and I'll give them tips on how to sell to end healthcare. Um, you don't have to be very involved, but it, it, and you can treat it as strictly passive if you're investing in lots of startups. I have a friend who invests in 30 startups a year. He doesn't do much. He just, it's, it's a passive game for him because he's investing in so many and he invests small check sizes. So a part of it has to be the check size you're investing. So as an angel, if I'm investing 50,000 or even 25, that's a decent amount for me. I, I'm more involved in the startup. If I'm investing like 5,000, then I'm less involved. Um, but to maximize your chances of success, you should be trying to help the startup find product market fit. I think that makes sense uh, from a common sense perspective. Yeah, no, for sure. And maybe we can talk about a little bit about your startup and what you learned and maybe how that kind of helps you in the investment saddle. You kind of touched on a little bit with the part-time and full-time, but you know, maybe we can go into a little bit about your startup. Yeah, so looking back, what I know now, I'm not sure if I would have invested in my startup if I came to pitch to myself. And, and I can see why uh, VCs passed on me. I, I did manage to raise about 120000 Um, But <laughs> most of the VCs, they didn't see a path to hockey stick growth for me. The biggest lessons learned from my startup, apart from you know being full-time, hiring for commitment, and, and I've made a video on this uh, as well, um, would be focus on the problem you're trying to solve. I was getting distracted by, it, it's good to be in growing markets, but you need to be committed to the problem to an extent. I was making decisions um, you know, I was having the, the, the shiny ball syndrome where I was kind of chasing diff too many things at the same time. I think focus is important um, and having a clear goal in mind, at least for the next few weeks to months and pivoting when you need to is important. Yeah, I think those are the two biggest lessons I would say. I didn't have any IP in my startup, which was a big red flag as well. I We used a third-party provider for our tech, so essentially we were a service provider, and service providers are notoriously hard to scale. And so I would keep that in mind, especially in healthcare where you need to hire physicians or nurse practitioners. I would keep that in mind as well when you're designing your startup. Yeah, no. Um, in the service, the service service versus like software argument is kind of interesting because healthcare, when you break it down, is basically a service industry, right? But it's also so hard to, you know, there's only so many people in the world or so many people that want, that you can hire in the world. Like, if, let's say, because, you know, if we're talking about health tech, so like, if you are a service-based startup, what are things that you can do to kind of get that hockey stick growth? Like, from the beginning, like, your mindset, like, what, what should they be, like, thinking about? I mean, the classic examples of, and I'll go back to Romans and for hymns and cerebral, is you sell into other verticals. They use your, the customers or the patients you get from providing the service, you use that as a funnel to funnel them into more profitable verticals like pharma, selling remote devices or subscription plans. The core service offering will never be profitable enough and will never scale enough, in my opinion, to get you that growth. You have to use other verticals to provide that um, hockey stick growth. It's kind of, I mean, this is kind of unrelated, but like, you know, a lot of game manufacturers like Xbox, very famously, they lose money on every single Xbox they sell, but they make all that money back on subscriptions yeah. and also the games that they sell, right? And so you're kind of just going the same thing, like, hey, go in knowing you're going to lose money on the service side, but have a plan on some sort of something that is scalable to sell to the patients. And I think... I mean, it sounds simple, but, you know, honestly, I wouldn't have thought of that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, have a plan and ideally do it from day one. Because, as again, as an investor, I want to know you can do it. I'm not saying being a service provider is easy, but it's not that hard, <laughs> like, to be frank with you. <laughs> you know, people want to see doctors 
right? Like it's it it it's still it takes a lot to learn how to manage people. Um, to just small things like you know having different organizational structures and plans for sick days and scheduling, uh, everything kind of adds up. And so I hired ten physicians from my startup. But it's I don't think it's the hardest thing in the world. <laughs> I think it's much harder to convince patients to buy other things you're selling and other subscriptions, um, which their insurance doesn't cover. Yeah, and that's another thing with health tech. And I think that's one thing that a lot of people that are not in healthcare really stumble on is the different players in healthcare. You have the, obviously the physicians, the patients, and sometimes they only focus on one or the other. And maybe you can talk about you know, creating a startup that doesn't focus on the clinician and only focuses on the patient. And then also you have the insurance aspect of it, right? So even though we're a private system here in America, the majority of the claims are going through insurance. So like big surgeries and things like that, if, if insurance isn't covering it, a lot of times people will be like, nope, no, thank you. I don't want to do that. Yeah. I mean, in healthcare, oftentimes the payer is not the user. So who do you design your product for? Do you design it for the payer or do you design it for the user? Or do you design it for the clinician who, you know, is kind of, who knows, sitting in purgatory somewhere <laughs> um, and just thrown in the mix? Well, this is what we're using now oftentimes. Yeah, I think ideally whoever you're selling your product to is using it because then the, the iterative cycle is much clearer. I don't have a clear answer here, but <laughs> yeah, no, no, it's yeah. it, and there is no. I don't think there is a clear answer because that's why it's so hard. That's why health tech is hard because there isn't a clear answer. Like, who do you cater to? And you know, when you when you were talking about being focused, like you can't really be focused if you're trying to create cater to all three. You know, it's really hard because all of them have opposing um, things that they're looking for, right? You know, um, so it's. I mean, I don't think there is an answer to the question. If they if there was an answer to the question, that person's going to be very, very, very rich. Um, and that hasn't happened yet. I mean, big tech is can't even figure it out right now. Like Amazon, just I think their solution is to just buy as many companies, and maybe <laughs> one of them will stick. And Google uh, isn't. And the only the only big tech. I mean, I don't. Too, this might be too much of a but the only big tech company that's kind of succeeding in healthcare, but in like a non traditional way, is like Microsoft. And they're not doing it by providing service to anyone. They're just providing service, like cloud based services, to hospitals. Right? They're doing the same. It's still Azure. But they're just saying, yeah. oh, it's HIPAA compliant. It was always HIPAA compliant. <laughs> they're, yeah. just, they're just relabeling it and, yeah. you know, going to going to a hospital system. So they're just maximizing on what they do really well, and yeah. they're just profiting on that. Yeah, no, I, I think you said it well. It's, um, it's difficult. I, I think the answer is to decouple service from humans. And, you know, AI-guided aut autonomous consults is the answer. It requires regulatory changes, and I think we're getting there slowly. And and I am banking in five to ten years we'll be there. And I'm actively investing in startups that are replacing me, not guiding me. And that's actually perfect. I was, that was going to be my next question as to what you see the next wave. And um, I wanted to get into your thoughts on AI because you're you're kind of more on the progressive end as most than most healthcare people. And, you know, so you, you mentioned that, you know, you're investing a lot of AI things and decoupling the service from the provider. And when people hear that, they get a little defensive, right? I'm sure that you, yeah. <laughs> I've read your comments and section and you get, you get a lot, you get some pushback, but um, what do you mean when you're, when you say that? I mean, exactly. AI should replace me. Mm -hmm. I mean, exactly that. I mean, if AI can do my job better than me, it should be allowed to do so. It should be allowed to do so in governance, education, healthcare, investing, banking, law, in every field, I think so. Defining doing my job better than me is, I think, what we should focus our energy on, not trying to protect our jobs for selfish reasons. Improving access to healthcare should be the goal, and providing the same quality of care worldwide should be the goal. If someone comes to me or someone goes to Mayo Clinic for a bladder infection, especially if there's no physical exam needed and the Mayo Clinic physician maybe does some tests and asks them some questions and provides them with the answer, someone going for treatment for a bladder infection in Gonda, which is my hometown in India, 
should get the same care. There's no reason they shouldn't, uh, apart from regulation, politics. But there's no technical or medical reason they shouldn't. So that's kind of what I'm talking about when I say yeah, I should replace my job. And I, and I honestly can't really push back on that at all because I think that's the whole point of technology, right? The technology is supposed to democratize anything and everything, right? Um, and when it comes to healthcare, and I agree with you, and I, I, I like the way you said it. We shouldn't be focused on saving our jobs. We should be focused on, A, what our job is, and how is it defined as successful? And if we can find a better way to make it successful, then we, should, we shouldn't stop going down that route just because we're afraid of what's going to happen. I wrote an article about how I would replace myself with a robot, and it was kind of tongue-in-cheek, but I was saying it in a way because a lot of the things that I do can be replaced by a robot, right? Like there's a lot of rudimentary tasks and busy work that I do on a day-to-day basis that a robot can take care of. And it would be beneficial to the patient on the other end, right? Because they, they would get faster access, faster care, faster medications. Everything would just be faster than I can do it, right? Because a, techno- I mean, a, a computer can compute millions of things at once, right? We can only do one thing at a time. Sometimes, yeah. sometimes we can't even do that one thing at a time. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, they, robots don't get tired. You know, they're always, avail- they're always available. Yeah. They're always active. They're not going to give you an attitude. They're always going to... Their, their only function is to what they're programmed for, and that's it. They're not going to yeah. go outside of that. I mean, we can talk about machine learning and this and that. That's a little different thing. But um, but I think the but the conclusion I came to, and the, the, I was kind of tongue-in-cheek. I was trying to be a little, you know, inflammatory. I'm not going to lie. But it yeah. was, you know, if we can take all these things off our plate, we still wouldn't lose our job because there's still, like, really outlier things that you need clinicians to work on. And... Yeah. That's what we should be focused on. Let's like let's take care of let's let's let AI and ML take care of all the things that are black and white, right? There are there are instances in healthcare we can kind of talk about them that are like okay, you don't really need. I mean, honestly, students can do most of it, right? Like residents yeah. and stuff, they're already doing it in teaching hospitals. But there are like those really outliers where you really need that um, yeah. expert opinion, and that's where we should be focusing our attention on. Is like how do we get to that point? But we're so caught up in, I mean, for pharmacy dispensing and this and that, like yeah. things that are not, no one finds that. I've never talked to a pharmacist saying, oh man, I love dispensing medications. Yeah. They always say, I love talking to my patient. I love solving the yeah. problems. I love that. Like the thing that makes us happy is the things that we're stopping us. We're stopping ourselves from being happy. Yeah. I think there's lots of examples that could be automated tomorrow if the regulations and the liability model shifted. The one thing I will say is, say I automate prescription refills for birth control. Again, something very simple from a medical perspective that really I don't need to see the patient for that. I need uh, sometimes a pregnancy test, I need their blood pressure, I need to ask them a few questions, and that's it. If the patient lies, I am still liable, and this is why it hasn't happened. The liability needs to rest with the patient and with the AI and then it will happen tomorrow. Yeah, and and that's the thing that always, always trips me up. Not trips me up in a bad way, but it's funny because, you know, and you can talk to this too, how many times has a patient seen you and you ask them a question and they literally lie to your face, right? And and it yeah. happens, This I mean, it happens more, I mean, it happens, I'm not saying every patient is lying to you, but but that same patient that's going to lie to you to your face is going to lie to you. A robot and versus the patient that's going to be honest and truthful with you is going to be honest and truthful with a computer system generally speaking right i mean i'll push back a little bit i think it is harder for people to lie to people to their face than it is to lie on a computer screen yeah. we see this all the time on forums youtube comments <laughs> people don't say those things face to face but their online persona is different but even that being said you know The reason people don't lie face-to-face is because they will be embarrassed or there is a human element, probably. We need to break down why people don't lie face-to-face and then try and replicate that. You know, the answer isn't to not do it. The answer is to figure out how to do it because our healthcare system has crumbled. I'll use the past tense because I think it has crumbled. And access to care will just continue to get worse until we find a solution that's not dependent 
on having more physicians or having more practitioners because I don't see that solution working. And I don't think that solution will happen fast enough. Yeah, no, I agree. I don't think, I mean, it's already happening. There's a mass exodus from healthcare in general. You're sure. losing a lot of great people, a lot of passionate people that were working well past what they were, what they're paid to do. And yeah. I think that's what, I think that's the thing that people don't realize, at least in the American healthcare system is it's being held up by overachievers, not by people. Yeah. Not by people just doing their job. It's being held up by yeah. everyone doing more than their job. And once these people start leaving, you know, it's like you're, it's like basically, you know, like Atlas, you know, the Atlas stone, like there's the guy yeah. holding up the stone, but if he leaves, the stone is just going to fall. And that's kind of what healthcare workers are doing with the healthcare system here, at least in America. The interesting question for me with AI is, I think most people will come along to AI replacing physicians and workers is if AI can be a better parent than us, should it replace us in our kids' lives? If AI can be a better friend than us, if AI can be a better leader, a better president, a better judge, you know, when it comes to those questions, I think that is a harder question to answer because we're coming down to our humanity and defining what makes us human. And what if AI can be more human than us? What if it learns to be more human than what we define humanity as, which is being creative, being emotional, maybe tiring out and needing sleep, whatever that definition is, what if AI can do it better than we can? That's actually a really interesting question. And I've thought about this. You've, you've written about this in the past. And I don't think we're going to, I don't think in our lifetime we're ever going to get to that point because it's, I think, um, conscious, self-aware AI is still quite a bit away. And um, I mean, it's an interesting question. I don't know the answer to it because I just don't know. Like, I have no idea. I don't even know how to answer that question. But to me, I've always been somebody like, if something can be done better than me, then they should probably do it. I guess that's the answer I'll fall back on. But but we're quite a bit away from even approaching that at all. Yeah, I haven't had anyone answer that question that I've asked them. <laughs> the answer is what, what you said, which is fair. Like, we're not seeing that for at least 100 years. Because I think it's an impossible question to answer. And I'm a little bit you know, it's a little bit arrogant of me and annoying to ask it because <laughs> there is no answer to that question, I think. I think I don't think it's annoying or arrogant. I think it's an interesting question. I like the question. It kind of makes you think of what is what is humanity? What is a human? What makes us different from, you know, the bird that's flying south for the winter? You know, like what is what is that makes us different? I would say that it's like our community and our ingenuity, right? That's we're much different than you know, yeah. animals and you know it's not our morality or anything like animals have morality studies have shown that it's just i think it's just i don't know i mean it's a really thought-provoking question and one that i mean i like personally i like those kind of questions because it really pushes the boundaries of what you think reality is yeah i think it goes back to purpose and why we're here and finding purpose and if ai will challenge that purpose you have and for a lot of people that purpose is raising good kids and providing them a good life. And once AI starts challenging that, I think we will see even people like me probably fight back and push back against AI. Because, you know, I, I'd like to think I am the best parent for my child. And recognizing that, that AI might be better, that is a painful reality that a lot of people will push back on, I think. Oh. I agree. And then maybe like taking that and kind of moving it back to physicians. So that, do you think that that's the same thing that some healthcare providers, like what you said about the parenting part is what's going to stop, that's scaring people a little bit because their purpose is being a healthcare provider, right? Um, just so do you think that's kind of what's stopping uh, the AI revolution, if you want to call it? Yeah. My identity is so far removed from be me being a physician. I, it's fairly easy for me to say, yeah. No, replace me <laughs> and because it's it's i and don't get me wrong there's parts of being a doctor i love i love talking to my patients i enjoy hard problems that i work on sometimes um usually i don't but <laughs> at the times i do i do enjoy it but it's not who i am if you ask me who is rashad and i say this uh, on my linkedin it says i believe it says artist entrepreneur investor physician 
So I identify as an artist, first and foremost. Dali is more scary for me than AI replacing um, physicians. So I, I get that. I, like a lot of, of my colleagues, it is who they are. And I, I can see why AI challenging their jobs will be so um, hard for them to accept. I'm trying to move my identity to my values and morals and not being attached to being an artist or an investor or an entrepreneur. Um, so that that's kind of my non-answer to that question. <laughs> yeah, no, and I think that that's like, I mean, it's not a non-answer, it's an answer. And I think that that, that that goes back to approaching, if you are an AI company, approaching doctors by not saying you're placing them or clinicians in general, be like, hey, we're freeing you up to do the things you love, right? Because yeah. most clinicians, when we come out, the thing that we that drives us here is that human connection, whether we like it or not sometimes. But, you know, talking to our patients is rewarding, right? Solving their problems is rewarding. But writing a note, filling out insurance issues, doing peer-to-peers, that's not rewarding at all, right? If you can take care of that stuff, if AI can take care of that kind of thing, or like, you know, dosing of Vanco, like, you know, those things can be automated, right? Those are not fulfilling me, right? Yeah. So that's, I think if you're an AI company, if you approach it with like that, like you're giving them time back to do the things they love, you're not going to have as big of an, you're not going to have a big of a hurdle to cross versus the person like, Hey, we're, uh, you know, we're going to be, we're creating the robotic PCP. You know, you don't even have to go to your PCP. You just log in and talk to them. That's going to cause some issues. I think the question for these clinical aid tools, and there's a, there's a few companies working on it, and I've invested in one as well, is how do you generate a financial return of investment on the phys- for the physicians you're selling it to? It's great you're re- improving my workflow. It's great that you're reducing burnout. But the reality I've found is that doesn't sell things. <laughs> People don't buy things unless you phrase it in terms of increasing financial return. So that's the question I have for those startups is what is your financial ROI proposal? If the financial ROI proposal is increased productivity in terms of seeing more patients, most of us are burnt out. We don't want to see more patients. We want to generate more revenue from the patients we're already seeing and do a better job seeing them. So that's kind of my push on on these. And, and I think they should, it's needed, but... A lot of them have a hard time with market adoption because of this reason. You need to uncover some financial ROI, and it cannot be reduce expenditure. It has to be increased revenue, especially in this market. People are not looking three years from now and buying something that saves them money. People are looking at what buys them, what increases their revenue this year in the next 12 months. Yeah, see, I mean, and and that's kind of... I mean, that right there shows like investor versus builder, right? Because, I mean, neither side, I'm not saying one is better than the other, but I mean, that's a, that's a perfect point right there, right? And it's not, and you're not, what you're saying isn't even wrong or anything, right? In the end, a clinic has to make money to stay open, <laughs> you know, uh, you know, a hospital has to make money to stay open. And that's a great, I'm glad you brought that up, but um, I know we're running against the, the clock, but what, uh, what is you know, maybe we can talk a little bit about your adventures. Like you have a newsletter, maybe you can tell people where to find the newsletter yeah. and what is the best way of reaching out to you. Yeah. Um, LinkedIn is likely the best way to reach me. And it's, uh, I believe my handle is just Rashad Asmani on LinkedIn. And then if you go on healthtechinvestors.com, I have my newsletter and a podcast. And both of those I try and put out weekly. So those are, I think, the the two best avenues to reach me. I'm on Twitter, but I don't post much. Yeah. And I'll have all those linked below. But um, what, and then we can maybe end the conversation with, what kind of, what advice would you have given yourself when you first started your startup or when you first started investing that you know now that you didn't know back then? Surprisingly, I haven't thought about this question. <laughs> I think for my startup, I would tell myself to do it alone initially and build the MVP 
and this is the advice I got from a couple of mentors, and and I'll I'll shout out to them, Samarth and Neil, and they're both uh, entrepreneurs. They have their own startups, and what they said is, if you don't need someone to start this company, then don't bring on a co-founder. Co-founders should have complementary skills. They should not double up on each other. So two physicians starting a startup to me doesn't make sense unless you have two very distinct roles and you're both going to learn and you will learn different roles, but doubling up on a role to me doesn't make any sense. So that's the one biggest advice I would give myself is to listen to my mentors (laughs) and don't be a know-it-all. For my investing journey, I think I've done it the right way. I've tested my intuition. I've gone against my intuition, which I wouldn't recommend again. I think there's two ways you can test your intuition. You can go against it when you say yes, or you can go against it when you say no. I would say maybe go against it when you say yes at times to a startup is a better way to learn than going against it when you say no. Because <laughs> we, uh, we're programmed for loss aversion more than reward-seeking. So something we invested and lost money hurts more than something we didn't invest in and makes money. So that's kind of what I would tell myself. Yeah, no, that's, I mean, that's great advice in general. But um, yeah, man, thank you so much for your time. It was insightful and thoughtful as always. Um, and yeah, I'll have all your links below uh, so people can reach out to you. Um, and subscribe to his newsletter. And I'll also have the link to you talking about your investing, I mean, your startup journey, because that 20 minute video has so much packed in there that I think anyone who's listening to this who's remotely interested in startups should go and watch that video. Yeah, no, thanks, man. I've been a big fan of yours and it's great to see your success and your newsletter and, and now this climb. And I hope we can keep working together in the future and hopefully meet with one each other soon. Yeah, man. Thanks a lot for the, those kind words. And definitely, man, you've been one of those people that have uh, been so insightful and to my just growth and journey in this whole space. So I, I honestly can't thank you enough. Yeah, at the risk of this being a bromance, <laughs> back to you. I think, uh, yeah, no, it's been great. Like, it's, it's great to have people similar to me, uh, you, Jawad, uh, to be on this journey with and try and find and carve out a niche outside of clinical medicine for ourselves. Yeah, for sure. It definitely helps to have other people involved. But yeah, man, thank you so much. And um, yeah, have a great day. Yeah, you're welcome.